Hello, Brad fans. What is up? How you doing? How you living? Today, we are going to cover a couple of different stories. Uh, and I just want to say that we do have a special episode coming out that I've been struggling with, uh, trying to get this story ready, trying to get this story told. I hope to have that out by the end of the month. So watch for it. Uh, and in the meantime, I just wanted to give you an episode with a couple cool stories that I found. Keep the feed active, feed the beast, the beast being you, the people. And I have a real special treat at the end of this episode. We are going to be hearing new music from my good friends in Calgary and friends of the show, The Dust Collectors. You'll get to hear their brand new track called Waiting Game and find out where to find their two recent EPs and pre-order an upcoming album, debut album. So stick around until the end for that. And of course, give us a follow wherever you're getting your podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. That really helps us out. Share us on your social media. Follow us on your social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at 2 brad for you You can also visit our website, 2BradForYou.wordpress.com and find out other ways you can get in touch with the show. Uh, and if you want to chip in a few bucks to help out, you can do that there too as well. At 2 brad for you on the social medias. And yeah, give us a follow, rate, review, subscribe, all of that great stuff wherever you're getting your podcasts. But now we're going to start this episode off with a story I'm calling Jab GPT. The main story that I wanted to talk about today involves AI. And no, I'm not going to be talking about chat GPT. I think we've heard about enough of that for the time being, and there's a lot of doom and gloom coming out of there. And honestly, uh, I don't want to look at it anymore. There is a positive story coming out about AI, and that is in the realm of biotechnology. A new program has been designed called Linear Design, which is allowing researchers to optimize messenger RNA, mRNA vaccines to make them more stable, which means we can transport them at room temperatures, potentially, making them more accessible to poorer parts of the world where they don't have the electricity for refrigeration or the, the money to pay for cold transport, et cetera, et cetera. And by making them more stable, it's also possible that they will produce more antibodies, making them just better vaccines. And aside from this specific use case, which we'll discuss in a bit more uh, detail, algorithms really lend themselves well to biotechnology because, and I'm no expert in algorithms or math, but at a rudimentary level definition, algorithms are really good at searching a data set, finding patterns given a specific parameter set that we define, and coming up with solutions to those questions based on the parameters that we've asked it to look in that would take us years and years and years to find. When there is such immense data sets and so many permutations, so many combina combinations of possible solutions to a given uh, question, AI is amazingly good at cutting through all of that and finding us the solutions that we might need. And biology is this data set. We have a good understanding of the parameters that allow biological cells, biological things to function, to operate. We understand biochemistry. We understand which molecules are going to be attracted to other molecules. 
which then determines, for example, how a protein might fold. If you get a chain of amino acids, all these different molecules, you put them together, that's what makes up a protein. We understand the hydrogen bonds in this one are going to more likely attract to this one, given the space that, that they occupy, and that's going to cause the, the linear strand of amino acids to fold in a certain way and create the protein structure, right? Like we understand how this works. We understand how the four base pairs of DNA, A, G, T, and C, code for these amino acids. We understand these things. However, the amount of variables that goes into how a protein is going to fold is incalculable by the human brain. It would just be too much. It takes too much time. We couldn't do it. We couldn't do it until AI algorithms came around and dramatically accelerated this process. And it's the same with, you know, the DNA coding for then the mRNA, the messenger RNA, which then codes for the protein. If you remember from your high school biology, you have four DNA base pairs, A, T, G, and C. Combinations of three of those are called codons, and different codons code for a specific amino acid. But because you have four base pairs, the amount of three base pair combinations you can make is huge. Yet there's only 20 amino acids. So multiple three-letter codons will code for the same amino acid. But you can see how this right here is an, a massive computational lift. In order, to un, in order to make a protein, you need to know the amino acid structure, or you need to decide, I want to put these amino acids in this structure. The number of different ways you can do that with the codons that are available is, is huge. It's large. So algorithms cut through a lot of this noise for us. This is how we're able to sequence the, the genomes of organisms and then determine where the genes are, what genes they have. It's an algorithm that's going through and scanning for all the possible combinations of, well, if we start counting these three as a codon, and then the next three, and the next three, and next three, what is that going to give us? Does it give us a protein that we already know exists? And we know that there's things like start and stop codons that tell you when a gene starts and when it stops, so the body knows to start translating at this point and stop at this point. So algorithms are searching these genomes, finding these codons, these start and stop positions, and then determining the sequence between them and does that resemble something that we've already seen? What if we shift just one base pair over? That's a whole new combination of three-letter sections all down the line. A whole nother permutation. This is what makes biology so incredible. This is why you know, such complex structures can be achieved by living things, because the permutations that are available, the combinations that are available is almost limitless. And so I think I've made the point how useful AI can be uh, for this, for these tasks. Now, the new program, Linear Design, is being used to help optimize messenger RNA vaccines. We remember that messenger RNA vaccines are made by taking the protein that we want our cells to produce, let's use the COVID example, the spike protein, 
we know the spike protein is made up of this sequence of amino acids. So we can translate that back into messenger RNA, create that messenger RNA molecule, put that into the cell, and our body will produce that section of the protein that we're looking for that then stimulates our immune system and gives us the protective antibody production. The problem with messenger RNA vaccines are they are inherently unstable, meaning they degrade over time, uh, especially at certain temperatures. And this is actually a good thing when it comes to biology. Evolution has made them this way because if a messenger RNA sends the message to your cell to create a specific protein, once, that pro once that's been created, if that's just constantly in your cell, you're constantly going to be creating that protein. So by having it degrade over time, it's like a, a natural uh, break on the amount of protein that's produced. And then if your body needs more of it, it will send a signal to the, to the cell to produce more of that messenger RNA, on and on. But it's, it's useful to have it degrade in our bodies. It's not useful to have it degrade when we're trying to transport that vaccine to far-flung places in the world, especially if they don't have refrigeration, uh, the money to pay for refrigerated trucks to bring that, uh, that vaccine to where it needs to go. It just increases the cost because in order to keep it stable in the, in the vials for the vaccine, you got to keep it at about minus 15 degrees Celsius. If you could design a messenger RNA that still produces the same protein that we're looking for, but that it itself folds in a way, again, based on the combinations of base pairs that you're using, they're going to have a certain attraction to each other. You could create a messenger RNA molecule, in theory, that folds back on itself, creating a double strand rather than a single strand. This would make it more stable. And that's exactly what this program, Linear Design, has been able to do. It's been able to search that data space of codon possibilities and how they're going to fold and just run through all the potential possibilities and spit out different combinations that are going to create molecules that are more structurally stable. We already do this a little bit uh, for a thing called codon optimization. It turns out the body prefers certain codons over others. So like I said before, there's a redundancy in the genetic code, right? You can have multiple three-letter codons that code for the same amino acid. For whatever reason, the body prefers some over the others, and it will more efficiently uh, translate those into proteins. Uh, so we already know this information, and we can put that level of of design into the mRNA vaccine so that we can get more efficient production of the antigen, the protein that we're looking for to help produce more antibodies. Now it looks like we can do that on a structural level as well. So in very early stages, very early tests, researchers have found they can improve the shelf life of these vaccines. So how long it's going to last in solution uh, when kept at body temperature. So that's a big win right there. The next thing is by having a more structurally robust messenger RNA, we, they actually get more production of antibodies as well. 128 times more production of antibodies has been seen in some mouse trials. 
There's a couple uh, companies that are playing with this, and there's one COVID vaccine that has been optimized in this way that has been approved for emergency use in Laos. Uh, so it's a early human trial going on right now, and we'll wait to see what the data looks like in humans because, of course, with everything, there is a risk of side effects. When we create these messenger RNAs that loop back on themselves, that create this double-stranded um, structure, the, it's possible that the immune system will be overly provoked by this. And this is because double-stranded RNA structures are found in viruses, so the human um, immune system is really primed to look look for these and react to them. So it's possible that you could overstimulate the immune system. However, early data is showing that that is not a problem. The, the risks appear to be about the same as they were for the regular COVID mRNA vaccines, uh, which as we know, there is risks, but it's still way lower than the risk of getting the disease. So very, very promising program. Apparently, it takes only a couple minutes to run on a desktop computer. So you don't even really need that much computing power to do this, which is also just amazing. Um, and this story for me is really cool because it highlights one of the main reasons why I am so fascinated by a biology. Because we understand, like I said, we we understand how biology works, but there's just so many variables, so many possibilities that we just can't grasp. And this is why people talk about, you know, the DNA, like a DNA type computer, you know, rather than a binary system that works on zeros and ones, you have four potential options. So the amount of computing power that you have using that uh, just using that four base pair set is immense. And you have the body's feedback mechanisms that control all of this. It's like a beautiful chaotic ballet where molecules are produced and then they find the target place that they need to go to sometimes just by, you know, probability of we produce so much, a bunch of them is, are just going to find the right place. But there's biochemistry involved, like I've been talking about this whole time, the way that things are attracted to each other via physics and chemistry. And it's all just occurring all the time in your body. And you're producing too much protein. And then that sets off a signal that sets off a cascade of pathways that creates a, a protein or an, or an mRNA or something that then degrades that protein and chops it all up. And then that sends a signal to something else to go to the DNA to latch on there and open it up and start translating another gene. Like it's just this fascinating, chaotic process that's unfolding all the time throughout your life. And that's coding for all of this immense diversity that we see just within our bodies and within the kingdom of life. All the life on the planet operates on this computing system. And that is, to me, just so fascinating. And it's filled with immense possibilities. And AI being able to help us churn through all of this data and create these fine-tuned proteins that we need to, say, rescue somebody from disease. Oh, you're not producing this protein because you have a genetic mutation? We can build that protein for you. 
And we can build it in a way that we know it's going to be safe because we've tested all of these different parameters. We can build it in a way that we know is going to be efficient. The, it sounds science fiction and it sounds kind of creepy, and, and it is. And there's tons of ethical questions and tons of safety and tons of, of, of trials that need to be done. But the possibilities are just so, so cool. And so when I saw this, this story come up in my, in my inbox, in my feeds, I was just really drawn to it because it just shows the power that computation and AI has in this space. And given that we've heard all of these negative stories about AI and algorithms, et cetera, et cetera, I wanted to talk about this because I think it's a really, really cool use of algorithms and a really, really positive one. So... Turning from cutting-edge biotechnology to a more, let's say, analog version, we have a bioethics story that is, that is kind of funny, but also serious, and probably something that you don't think a lot about, and that is sperm donation. So a recent story out of the Netherlands involves a man who allegedly has fathered between 500 and 600 kids via sperm donation. This is through clinics and also private arrangements, I guess, that he had made. And the courts have now banned him from donating any more sperm. It's too much sperm. We've got too much sperm here, bud. Uh, and he faces fines of 100,000 euros if he breaks this, this agreement. And the reasons um, that this was brought to to the courts, uh, I believe it was one of the parents of one of the child of one of the children that were fathered using this man's sperm, uh, brought the case forward. And the argument is that they're now part of this kinship network, these kids of half siblings across potentially multiple countries that they never really intended. Dutch law states that you should only be allowed to father 25 children in 12 different families using, you know, donated sperm. Uh, and so this, you know, he, he falsified documents allegedly to be able to get around that, to, to, to hide the fact that he was donating so much, um, which makes me question the motivation. Like, what is, what is the motivation behind this? I don't think it was financial. I'm not sure if the Netherlands compensates you for sperm donation, but even if they do, I think the I don't think the I don't think the motivation here would be financial. Uh, the the compensation is usually not that much. Um, so that's an interesting aside. But the rights of the children to you know, it sounds odd, but the courts agreed that there's a potential psychological harm to being part of this unknown large kinship network. They, they deemed, you know, quotes from the judge and, and testimony and stuff was just that like, it's too large. It's, we don't know what the psychological impact would be on those children. And then there is a fear of potential incest. If you have so many unknown uh, half siblings, you know, related people in a relatively small country, you know, what are the what are the acceptable odds that two of these people might meet and form a relationship without knowing that background? That's a weird one, too. Um, so it's not, you know, this, 
sperm donation has been around for a while. There was an article related to this that uh, came up in uh, Belgium, where I'm living right now. And they talked about, you know, obviously the hook was, could this man have donated in Belgium as well? And, you know, neighboring countries, et cetera, et cetera. The likelihood is, they, they say, is low that that happened. But the other point that this article makes is that there's actually a... A, a need for sperm donation. There is an unmet need, at least in Belgium. So there's more people wanting to use this service than there are uh, donors. So again, not something we think about and a rather, I made the joke at the, the beginning of the segment, rather analog form of biotechnology. But on the surface, it's 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 kind of funny. It, it gave me a quick a quick giggle because I'm ridiculously immature. But a lot of interesting questions that come out of this what, that, you, that we don't think of. And I think bioethics and, you know, the ethics of some of this stuff, you know, obviously we think about um, stem cells and where do stem cells come from? You know, there was at the beginning, stem cells were often um, uh, taken from aborted fetal tissue. Uh, now we have other ways of getting them. Um, but... You know, the story of the Chinese scientists that used CRISPR to alter the embryos, uh, human embryos. So the, the first CRISPR babies, that was a massive scandal. And with the types of technology that I'm kind of talking about in this episode, at the beginning of the episode, we can see the obvious um, ethical concerns and safety concerns and all this. But a story like this kind of flips it back to the, you know, just the basics will say, um, and shows what a tricky space biology is when it comes down to us human beings, our identity, who we are, our genetics, our relationships to other humans, our, our, in, our inheritance, you know, our, in, our inherited makeup, our cultural makeup. There's really, really, really tricky, tricky questions. And I think, first off, I would like to say that, you know, maybe I present my optimism for the biotechnology future in a way that that seems to, let's say, uh, downplay some of these questions and, and risks. And I don't want that to be the case. I want to make it very clear that with this technology comes, you know, very great responsibility. And that's why we should have these discussions. We should be open to these discussions rather than you know, black and white thinking, which we kind of see all over the place. And I don't want to go on too big of a tangent here. But like I said, just a a, a story that I didn't see coming. Uh, unfortunately, the Netherlands has, this is like the third story in the last five years that has come out about uh, the Netherlands and, and fertility clinics. So I don't know what's going on in the Netherlands. The other two involved doctors um, using their own sperm as donations when the uh, the women didn't consent to that. They thought they were getting sort of anonymous donations from, and the doctor was using his own, his own sperm uh, and then fathering, yeah, like 50 kids or something like this. Like this happened twice in like 2019 and 2020 in the, in the Netherlands, two separate incidents. And now this, so I don't know, maybe the Netherlands needs to get a handle on what's going on over there. Uh, there's just too much sperm. These Dutch guys just have too much sperm. Um, the other interesting thing that popped up in the article, the related article uh, about this, which will all be linked in the show notes, um, in Belgium, is they talked about 
creating a database of donors, right? So there's already a lot of strict, um, you know, testing that has to be done on the donations in order to, you know, screen for obvious uh, problems, right? But they're talking about making a database and advocates were saying like, well, why hasn't this database been made yet? And the government kind of said, sounds like the government is saying that it's, we're going to do it. We're going to do it right away. Kind of maybe spurred on by this, this latest um, Dutch serial sperm donor. Uh, and that, you know, you could see privacy issues on that side too, right? Um, obviously, I think if you're going to donate your sperm, you you would understand that the parents have a right to know who who donated it, but how much should they know? Um, you don't, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of spitballing off the top of my head here, but like, what are the, what are the implications of that? Will it drive more people to not donate? And you're already saying that you have a, a an unmet need. I don't know. These are all open questions. Uh, and I just thought it was a, a funny tag to the the first story that we had, where you have this very high-minded technology, biotechnology, future AI helping us design these amazing new vaccines and stuff. And yet we still wrestle with the basic bioethic questions of sperm donation, which while, a, while it is a, a technological feat and not something that, you know, was, was available uh, forever, well, maybe in some rudimentary forms, but you see what I'm saying. Um, fascinating, yet hilarious, yet disturbing story uh, out of uh, the Netherlands. So way to go. Way to go, Holland, for giving us that one. And I think we'll leave it there. There was another interesting story um, in The Economist that focused on something that we talked about uh, on previous episodes, and that is the rise in teenage depression and anxiety, especially among uh, adolescent females, uh, and how that coincides with the um, invention of the smartphone. And... Without you know breaking down too much, it was just an interesting piece that maybe I'll I'll link to as well in the show notes because it's a it was a nice example of using data to try and parse through this, and they're kind of they're making the claim that maybe the association isn't as strong as we might think. Obviously, there's lots lots of reason to to believe or to to assume, sort of maybe assumes the wrong word, hypothesize that. Smartphone social media can have a negative impact on the mental health of young people, especially females. I think that's pretty like that's a pretty straightforward argument. But when you look at data and the rates of you know these increases, it's not uniform across all countries. So yes, smartphone adoption uh, culturally and you know just with the availability of these things maybe happened at different times in these countries so you know there's there's a caveat there but i just thought it was an interesting point to make that it's maybe it's too simple and we're running for those you know black and white kind of thinking that i was just talking about where it's like smartphone bad social media bad look what it's done it's ruined our kids when there's probably more going on there there's pro it's one of many factors and so the fact that you don't see this you know, universal rise in these things um, across countries is just the very basic point um, that this article makes. They go into some more nuance about the differences in, um, you know, how you measure 
those kind of things. Uh, you can't, it's, it's difficult to sort of just measure like, are you depressed? Are you anxious and stuff in a, in a broad population? So they look at rates of uh, self-harm, attempted suicide, something where someone has been taken to a hospital to be treated for that. So there's a record of it. And it was just an interesting thing to, to show how you use data to look at these things. You know, we have, we have this association, especially in, I believe, you know, you could say the United States, probably Canada and the UK, where smartphones are introduced and the uh, depression and anxiety rates among young females goes up. Another interesting thing they point out in this in this story is that you know while that rate has gone up for females, it still is below the rate for males. Young males commit suicide at a way higher rate, um, and that's remained stable. That hasn't really gone up with the with the with the advent of of smartphones. So what is that? What does that say? You know, what did, what is what can we learn from that, or what questions should we then ask based on that piece of information? So, another story I'll link to, and then we are going to end it here, wrap it up here. Like I said, I got a really um, special episode that I'm struggling to get out. It should be out by the end of the month, so please watch for that. Um, it involves a workshop that I did in Berlin. Uh, with the Mind Foundation that you've heard me talk about uh, many, many times, a nonprofit that's working to bring psychedelics to the clinic. This was a workshop about the role of psychedelics outside of the clinic and helping people navigate, um, not necessarily drug-induced, but just any sort of psychedelic experience, so breath work, meditation, you know, just life, uh, and getting the most out of these states. Like, what are we? What are? What is the goal for this? Uh, project. If we are going to be, you know, exploring these states of consciousness and stuff, how can we be getting the most out of them? Was the nature of the workshop, and it's a it's a question that I am, you know, deeply deeply interested in, and I think it's an, an important one. As you know, laws are changing around these things. We should have again a conversation as to what that means. What is the role of these things uh, in our society? So that'll be coming out, and then as promised. You are going to hear a track from my good friends, The Dust Collectors, uh, a band out of Calgary, Alberta. I know all of these guys. Some of them I have known since, you know, the fifth grade, the seventh grade. Uh, we used to play music together. They are playing music right now. They have just come out with a great album. It will be coming out within a couple of weeks, I believe, um, end of the month, end of May. And you can check out their website the dustcollectors.com uh you they're also pretty active on instagram so check them out on instagram at the dust collectors music and i wanted to play for you a track because i really love really love the band uh they've been supportive of the podcast so we're sharing the love uh, and this is a great track called waiting game uh check out again uh, the website the dustcollectors.com they have some upcoming shows uh in may uh, and then into the summer, if you're in the Calgary and Alberta area, and hopefully we can get the boys on one day to talk about, maybe we'll talk about AI and music. Uh, we'll talk about the role of music in, uh, culture and psychology, uh, what it does to our brain and how important that is. And, and the different sorts of, let's say peak states you can get from music. All sorts of interesting questions about music and science that we could weave together. So 
Um, check out the dustcollectors.com. Give them a follow on Instagram. And of course, all of these tracks are available on Spotify. So check them out on Spotify. And I will talk to you all next time. Here is Waiting Game by the Dust Collectors. go and as always you know, follow us on instagram on twitter at two brad for you visit the website two brad for you.wordpress.com follow us uh, and review rate all of that stuff subscribe wherever you get your podcasts that really helps us out share us with your friends uh let people know thank you so much for listening everyone we'll talk to you later bye for now <laughs>